If you enjoy the stories on this podcast, you'll also like the stories in my book, Filmmaking Confidential, which isn't just for filmmakers, but also all artists and really any entrepreneur. Now on Amazon.com and Audible.com bestseller. I just want to say thank you to all of you who ordered it. If you haven't yet picked it up, it's available wherever books are sold in most countries around the world. To find out more, check out FilmmakingConfidential.com and SteveBalderson.com. And thank you. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast. Every week we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Today, I'll be reading from my book, Filmmaking Confidential. This bonus episode is the first of a few book readings I'll share in the coming weeks. Introduction This collection of essays, stories, and tales are lessons I've learned and my experiences during the past 23 years of making and selling films worldwide. This book is a detailed look at my style of filmmaking. As a believer that there are nearly 8 billion people in the world with 8 billion different perspectives, far be it for me to proclaim that this is the style of all low-budget filmmaking. I am relatively certain that other filmmakers exist in the world today and have developed their own methodologies for bringing their visual works to fruition. My advice for you is to take whatever information I share that is useful to you and explore it. Find out if it might help you. If you come across something you feel isn't useful, don't think about it. Read on to find the next useful tip. There are two pioneers in this world of ultra-independent filmmaking that I want to call out. First is John Cassavetes. The other is Stan Brackage. I bring them up not to compare myself to them, but to simply explain that from the earliest periods of film, there have always been mavericks, independent and strong-willed individuals with a story to tell, who have refused to follow the rules as they existed at the time. John Cassavetes worked in a world of classic cinema. He was a well-respected actor who was sought after for traditional films. And yet there was another side that embraced doing things differently. When I met Jenna Rollins, Mrs. John Cassavetes, at the Stockholm International Film Festival in 1998, where she was receiving an outstanding achievement in film award, I was struck by her comments about working in that independent environment. There was a devotion to the art and a devotion to the craft, and neither had to be compromised to reach the desired outcome. I never had the privilege of meeting or knowing Stan Brackage. Ironically, he was a Kansan, as am I. My mentor, Eric Sherman, was a dear friend of his. I learned about Stan through Eric and became intrigued by his work. He was a man who explored the world of film without even subscribing to the notion that there had to be a narrative. It was an exploration of the visual sense, a journey into the brain as wired directly by the optic nerve. In addition, he was legally blind. Though I remain a committed narrative storyteller, I have been influenced greatly by Brackage and have explored finding my own way of using color and visuals 
to provoke a viewer's response. What is the point of mentioning these two greats? It is simply this. No matter where we are or what we have done, others have gone before us. We can derive much wisdom from their journey, and their experiences can have a positive impact upon our own journey. No, we cannot simply make their journey again. That is the ultimate problem with Hollywood. It can only emulate, copy, and reproduce. Originality is lost. What we can do is be inspired and encouraged by those who have gone before. In and of itself, the above is not enough reason to put this book together. When I embarked on my filmmaking odyssey in 1996, I was a recent CalArts dropout. I had been obsessive about filmmaking from the time I talked my grandfather out of his Betamax video camera when I was eight years old. I wanted to make films. CalArts was the right place to be if I wanted to be independent, but it was not the place to be if I wanted to dive in and experiment with narrative, live-action filmmaking. Being a stubborn, 20-year-old firstborn, I simply quit and said to my dad, I'm ready to make a real film. He said, If we can do this in a business-like manner, then yes, I will help. What has followed since my directorial debut, Pep Squad, was filmed in 1997, has been a series of lessons and experiences that have resulted in my approach to filmmaking. Each new project, and there have been 17 of them at the time of this writing, has taught me valuable lessons about what to do next time and what never to do again. It is my hope that sharing all of this with you will be of benefit to you as you move along your filmmaking journey. Finding Your Perception No two people see the same thing the same way. It's a fact. No two sets of eyes share the exact same perspective. Even when we're looking at the exact same thing. Everyone on Earth has an individual overall perception of everything that resides past the tip of his or her nose. Many people dislike looking past the tips of their noses, in either direction, but that doesn't change the fact that no two people see the same thing the same way. There is no such thing as a singular perspective. No overall point of view. Even when thousands of people are gathered in a convention center looking at the speaker at the podium, no two people in the room will have the same point of view. One person watches from this angle, another person watches from millimeters away. No matter how hard you try, it will be impossible to see out another person's eyes. It's just not going to happen while you're alive. I attended film school at California Institute of the Arts, CalArts. The first thing I learned was, and my professor actually said this, you don't need a degree to be a filmmaker. You just need to be a filmmaker. I understand that while a diploma won't be directing or producing anything, isn't it in the school's best interest to encourage me to continue attending and paying tuition? The second thing I learned was the concept of individual perception. Upon hearing the word, the first thing I wondered was, 
What is perception? Is it something to be found in a textbook? Certainly, I'll have to buy all the books and required reading. I mustn't miss a single class, just in case they pass out perception samples. Maybe after next year's tuition payment, they'll tell me what it is. Must be exciting, this perception business, because it's certainly costly. I mean, one could purchase a Mercedes for the same price. It must be something rather extraordinary. Well, it was. When I understood the notion of individual perception, it was as if an entirely new world had opened up for me. It was, in fact, better than a Mercedes. The concept is one of the most exciting, most rewarding ideas I have ever pursued. Having a core, a self, wherein I am in charge of what I see, changed my life. There was a class at CalArts called Scene Analysis, or something of the sort. We watched films and took them apart shot by shot, scene by scene, inspected from an overview floor plan, like an architectural blueprint, where the camera was positioned for each shot. We also studied where the actors were standing and where the lights were positioned. Here's what I learned. Hitchcock, Bergman, Tarkovsky, Bunuel, Fellini, Houston, Kubrick, and the other so-called masters were not putting the camera in the best place. They weren't putting the lighting in the best place. They weren't telling the world's best stories. So I began to wonder, why on earth are they so admired? What's all the fuss about? I've seen their work. I've inspected each frame down to the millisecond. What's so special about them and not other filmmakers? What do they have that others don't? Most everyone has seen a David Lynch film. Nine out of ten people think they make no sense, have no purpose, and examine the story and don't get it. So what's the big deal? Well, the biggest deal is individual perception. That's what they've got that no one else seems to understand. They have an individual perception. Special emphasis should be placed on the word individual these artists don't look at their families, friends, and neighbors to answer how they ought to see something. They don't look to their schools, churches, or governments for definitions on how to be or think. They simply look inward and ask themselves, how do I see this? And once they answer the question on their own, they respond with, if I see it like this, I shall put the camera here. They do not have other people telling them where to put the camera or how to light the scene. They answer only to their inner spirit. Their eyes tell the tale. Not the eyes of the DP, key grip, focus puller, leading actor, or editor. These filmmakers are masters because they are simply putting the image together as they see it. Seems easy enough. So why aren't most people doing the same thing? Why is our entire culture doing the total opposite? I suspect that there is a reason why the notion of individual perception isn't taught in schools. Clearly, there is a reason why the concept of having an individual viewpoint is not encouraged at church. Why? First and foremost, the concept of individual perception is very dangerous to those who maintain their power through prescribing what is accepted and what is not, and persuading the populace, whether it is the marketplace for movies or the voters of a nation, 
to a single, externally defined criteria for a group perception. Never mind that the term group perception is an oxymoron. If an instructor at a university actually understood the concept of individual perception, it would make evaluating the work of students much more difficult, beginning with an admission that the professor's view was not the right and only way. It would force enormous change upon institutions of higher learning, not to mention calling their very existence into question. If society actually embraced the idea that no two people see the same thing the same way, it would revolutionize interpersonal communication. We can only imagine what would happen to movie reviews, at least as we know them. Instead of Mr. Critic proclaiming for the world what a film is about or what it means, he would actually leave it to the viewer to derive his or her own perception from the work. After all, when a viewer watches something, they watch it from their own perception. They have their personal experience. Their eyes are their eyes. Mr. Critic's eyes are his eyes. Just a thought. This will likely never occur in our lifetimes. The power structure will likely see to it that the concept of individual perception is squashed wherever it seems to blossom. Governments, religious institutions, big business, education, you name it, have a vested interest in promulgating the notion that one size fits all. On my street, one size does not fit all. I'm about six foot five inches tall and wear size 13 shoes. Average chairs don't have the right sitting distance off the floor. And even if they did, I can't sit at an average desk without ramming my knees into the low desktop. And it doesn't end there. Standard kitchen countertops are too low. The standard clothing sizes of most brands are too short, too baggy. It was like pulling teeth to get my plumber to install a shower head at the correct height for me. He said, but this is where they put shower heads. No one puts them that high. I understand this, but I'd like the shower head to pour down on my face. I really don't want it to be pointing at my chest. I'm not five foot eight, and I shouldn't have to pretend I am just so you feel better about it. It then occurred to me that the plumber was, in fact, my height. How could he live his life never questioning this? Has he never noticed the height of his own shower head? Has he never noticed the height of his bathroom sink? Probably not. He probably has spent a lifetime defining his expectations and beliefs because that's how it's always been done. It amazes me that people seem to prefer just going along and letting the world define who they are and what they ought to believe. I recently got a call from a storyboard artist. He offered to sketch my storyboards for my next movie. I thought, how strange. Why would I want to shoot a film from his perspective? Wouldn't I rather use my own? My eyes are not his eyes. I mean, it's an interesting concept to photograph someone else's vision. For me, it goes against what I define for myself as a filmmaker. If I'm not using my own perception of the material, what the hell am I doing? Lounging by the fucking pool? Beware the people who pay lip service to the notion that there are 8 billion viewpoints in the world. Even as they say that, they attempt to categorize entire nations into a single descriptive group. Muslim, Jew, Christian. 
All Muslims are terrorists. All Jews are rich. All Christians are good. Well, it just isn't true. In fact, growing up in Kansas, we had a few Christians that, well, there's no reason to mention their hateful Baptist church out loud. The next time that some politician tells you to vote for him or her because they share your values, ask yourself, how would they know what my values are? What is so special about this politician that somehow gives them the psychic superpower to see the world through your eyes? The next time some know-it-all tells you that your script isn't traditional enough or your short story doesn't follow the accepted structure, look deep inside and investigate, explore with your inner self, your individual perception. Find out if their commentary fits your own requirements and definitions. If it doesn't, Tell them to mind their own business. Everyone would benefit by having an individual perception, yet most people fight it. Most people do not want to have their own perceptions. They avoid developing their own unique individualized viewpoints. Why would anyone not want to have his or her own individual perception? Could it be? Is it maybe? Just maybe? People want to avoid taking responsibility for themselves? Consider this. It's so much easier to blame someone else. Somehow the world has defined responsibility as fault, and furthermore, fault as something demeaning or negative. But the truth is, everything that happens in your life is your fault. You are responsible for your actions and reactions. You are responsible for you not your neighbors, churches, schools, or governments. People who don't like hearing things like that will always find an excuse to justify their behavior. Commonly, people use money as their primary excuse. Oh, I don't have enough money to make a film. Or, oh, I'd love to move away and be an actor, but I don't have the money. Another one is, I'd love to work outside with my hands, but I can't afford to give up my present job. Well, then why not figure out how to make it, be it, or do it? There are always ways to find investors, or a job to pay your expenses, or a different and affordable lifestyle. The second set of excuses usually deals with blaming other people. But I can't leave my spouse and do what I want to do. Or, if I do what I want, people will think I'm crazy. Okay, maybe so. But who is driving your car? Be aware there are choices. Finally, people unwilling to take responsibility for their own behavior will use horror or abuse. 9-11 wasn't my fault, so there, you're wrong. No, chances are the horrific terrorist acts of 9-11 were not your fault. But ask yourself, who forced you to stop working until 9-15? Who made you sit in front of the television? Did the terrorists? Or did you choose to do that all on your own? I'm abused on a daily basis. It's not my fault he beats me. You are correct. It isn't your fault if you have been beaten, at least not the actual hitting. But do you make the choice to remain in that environment? Do you seek help or escape? Everything that happens in your life is your fault. Another way of saying it is, that you are responsible for determining what you do, how you do it, and what your attitude toward life is. Environmental things will occur, 
Storms will come. Accidents will happen. Disasters will occur. But what you do, how you respond, is up to you. It's one of the first hurdles to overcome in developing your own individual perception. If you make the choice to not find investors, then you probably won't have any. If you make the choice to not create a business plan, you won't have one. If you make the choice to not find a job you enjoy, chances are you will probably work at a job you hate. If you make the choice to let society define who you are, you won't be the one defining you. Is this what you want? Are these your decisions? Remember the old saying, people who dislike having their feet sliced open should avoid walking on shards of glass. If you want to make films or tell a story or work in a forest or sit on a mountain, well, get your shit together first. Develop your point of view. Are you going to define your story by what it says in the How to Write a Script book? Will you define your perspective by the rules in the Filmmaking for Dummies manual? According to the CIA World Factbook, men in the USA on average live to 72, while women live to 79. For the sake of making this less confusing, let's say the average span of a human life is 75. About 35% of it is lost in sleep, and another 30% of that is lost to the vicissitudes of youth while 10% is probably spent being old and or ill. That leaves about 25% of those 75 years to be all we can be, to do all we can do, and to live life as though it is as precious as it actually is. We have 18 or 19 years during which we can make choices that enrich our lives, put meaning into our relationships and advance the causes we believe in. Just 18 or 19 years. That isn't a very long time. Every day we are given choices. Every time we look at something, whether a challenge or miracle, we are given the opportunity to either learn about it or not, to take action and do something about it or not. What will you choose? On my street, we praise the individual for striving. It isn't about quantitative success. After all, whose definition of success are we using? We have some simple questions on my street. Are you happy? Are you fulfilled? Do you have a sense of reward at the end of the day? Are you meeting your expectations as opposed to those of someone else? And when the answers are no, which they sometimes are, we follow up by asking the following questions. What could you do differently that would get you what you want? Is there another path to pursue that might yield different results? Are there people in the world that might help you? Have you fully defined what you want? These questions keep me and others on my street focused on being responsible for our own results not thinking wishfully about what could have been or how unfair life is. Next time you start to blame somebody else for your less-than-desired situation, try a couple of those questions on for size. An excerpt from my book, Filmmaking Confidential. One of my favorite guests from season one is cult icon Mink Stoll. John Waters will tell you a story that I threw a saxophone at him 
We didn't speak <laughs> after we finished filming Pink Flamingos. I moved out. You can hear my full interview with Mink at filmmakingconfidential.com or by subscribing for free to this podcast. Coming up, I'll read another chapter from Filmmaking Confidential right after this. I'm Steve Balderson, and this is the Filmmaking Confidential podcast. I'm back with a special bonus episode reading chapters from my book, Filmmaking Confidential. The Floor Plan Say you're building a house. Would you go to the lumber yard to buy wood before drafting a floor plan? No, that would be stupid. Now, say you want to write a screenplay. The same kind of thing applies here, too. Screenwriters who write with no idea where they're going usually end up with a script that reads like it doesn't know where it's going. I know several writers who sit down at their desks and stare at the blank screen, or sometimes actual paper, dig deep for the inspiration and begin typing away. It sounds romantic, maybe even the epitome of what it might mean to be a true writer. Well, I hate to burst the bubble, but unless you write in front of a group, no one else will see that moment except you. Sure, that romantic way of writing can sometimes make magic, but most of the time, many writers rarely make it to page three before starting over. And those who make it past page three usually take months and months to complete a single screenplay. Why? Because they didn't have a structure to follow. Having a floor plan or a clear outline is a more efficient way to write a movie. There is no right way or wrong way to make this structure, outline, floor plan. A structure can be organized in any way so long as it helps you. Note cards, computer document, etc. I use a single sheet of notebook paper to begin outlining mine in blue ballpoint pen. There are roughly 25 lines on a single sheet. First, number them, 1 to 25. Then, look at those numbers and imagine a time associated with them. I say it's somewhere between 3 and 5 minutes. Then, you can begin to separate the outline into movie time. Your single sheet of paper now represents somewhere between 90 and 120 minutes. Of course, you can break it down even further and use two sheets. I like keeping my entire outline on one sheet, making it easier to spot certain moments. I apologize if that's bewildering. If you aren't ready to dive in and make your own outline or structure, my advice is to familiarize yourself with all the story structures you can. One way to learn about a screenplay's structure is by drafting one for an existing movie. Any movie will do. I'd suggest watching All About Eve and write down a brief description of what happens every three or five minutes. Then, watch Showgirls and do the same. When you're finished, compare them. You'll discover that they are basically the same movie. It's pretty obvious, Joe Esterhaus studied the structure of All About Eve before writing Showgirls. His writing style is pretty obvious, too, but yours doesn't have to be. Before writing my first film, Pep Squad, 
I studied the structure of 9 to 5, the classic starring Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, and Jane Fonda. Instead of setting the story in the corporate world, I placed it in high school and added some of my own special touches, drive-by shootings, campy dialogue, fun costumes, etc. If you study Pep Squad and 9 to 5, you'll easily find the similarities in their structure. If you have a structure, floor plan, or outline, you can write freely in any order you like. That's my favorite part about getting the structure down first. If there's a specific scene or sequence that's really clear to me, I'll type that out first, even if it's in the middle of the timeline. Or maybe the ending is super clear. Go write it. Details and the way to combine sequences can be decided later. By drafting a solid floor plan, you'll have a lot of fun building your screenplay. Chances are, you'll never have a feeling of burnout. You'll never have writer's block. And in the end, you'll actually have a comprehensive screenplay. Great screenplays write themselves. Great films shoot themselves. Your job as a creator should be to never question a signal or inspiration. Just go with it. And use your eyes, ears, and then, if you've appreciated and respected your creation, it'll all be there. The skill is to not interfere with it. Give it some room to breathe. A sentence like, Listen to signs from the universe might sound hokey, but I would still advise it. If you've written a scene to take place inside a garage, and no matter what you try, no one will let you film in their garage, simply change it. If you fight it, the fight will wear down the natural flow and keep you from seeing what is truly supposed to be there. When you're writing a script and you hit a stumbling block, move on. Go to another scene. If you've outlined your story and developed a clear structure, you can simply skip around. If you've foolishly started writing without a clear structure in place, stop whatever you're doing and develop the structure before going any further. If you're a songwriter and the lyrics just aren't coming to you, put in some working sounds that may or may not even be actual words. Maybe they're just noises and sounds, vowels, that you can exchange with actual words later. Realists have a more difficult time than the rest of us because they get bogged down with the laws they were raised with, or laws that have been pounded into them by society at large. Water is wet, the sky is blue. Neither may be actually true, but we are taught they are. Letting go of the trappings in the world around you and allowing yourself to feel what you feel is a really hard thing to do for most people. I assure you that once you get the hang of it, it'll be easier and easier. In my own work, I can see the differences between projects where I've opened myself up to the universe and let all the pieces fall into place, or on the projects where I've forced it too much. It's taken me a decade to finally tap into something I can't understand, and which is hard to communicate, a beingness that is just there. They say, write what you know, and likewise, film what you know, sing what you know, dance what you know, and paint what you know. Of course, that's wonderful and always enjoyable, but it's also fun to push yourself 
a bit into an area you don't know. People ask me what inspires me to make a film. The answer truly lands in what I'm interested in learning next. I've never made a proper science fiction film or Western. Learning how to do it is exciting to me. I've never made an erotic film. Having to learn about what makes eroticism work is a challenge, especially if it's a kind of sexuality I know nothing about. I consider myself a mad scientist in a way, wanting to combine different genres or starting a movie off in one tone and then ending it in another. Like my film Casserole Club, where we begin with tongues planted firmly in cheeks, then halfway through, I twisted the tone and moved into something serious, heavy, and utterly devastating. I also love making movies that stick in the same tone throughout. But regardless what story you're telling, my advice is to be open to letting the creation have its own life force. Give it some room to morph, grow, and breathe. You might just find that it grows into its own amazing being. Let it move from the cosmos through you into being. Works of art are like children. And as a parent, it is most responsible to let your children develop into who they are. It is irresponsible for you to make them into what you want them to be. Take a step back and open yourself up to the possibility that they just might have their own voices and their own energies. And if you can learn to respect them, you might be surprised at what happens next. Tune in next time for more Filmmaking Confidential. It is totally free to subscribe, and when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically, and you'll have free access to all our past shows. Please leave a review to let us know how we're doing. The Filmmaking Confidential podcast is a production of Dekanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. For more of the Filmmaking Confidential podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. While you wait for season two, have a listen to some of the episodes from season one. The stories shared by each guest are often funny, honest, candid, and extremely inspiring. Production of season two is in the works. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book, Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, and ebook, wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time, keep making, keep doing, keep going. Keep going.